Folks, have you ever needed to depend on something entirely? Some of you are resisting that idea right now, I can tell. Never needed nothing. I mean, we're all sitting in chairs. We're depending on those right now. I've broken some of those in my life. I know what happens when they rebel against you. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a coworker. Every day they show up and it's their vigilance that has kept you alive in the work that you've done. Or it's a friend who's been there for you and you don't know how you would have made it through a season without them. Maybe it's something silly. I can think of a way that dependence on a zip line or a swing set has been vital to childhood experiences or vital to their failures, you know? I grew up in a town that happened to be a bit of a vacation town, Sandusky, Ohio, and there was this water park there known as Kalahari. Have any of you ever been to an indoor water park? All sorts of fun and terrible things can happen there. It, my experience is mostly landed in the latter, the terrible things. They, they had this surf wave. Have you seen those before? Where it's like a permanent jet stream of water on a curve, and they make people think that it would be fun to get out there on a surfboard of sorts and try to show off while hundreds of people laugh at them. And I'm just so thankful. God is so good that phones didn't have social media back then. Because, man, I tell you, you have to, in order to stay up on these boards, you have to depend wholly. You have to lean in on this board with your life. You have to trust wholly that that board is what's going to keep you up. Because as soon as you try to ease back on your own power, maybe step a foot on that wave, or you, you start to not trust the board, which means you stop putting your weight on it evenly, man, I tell you, it takes like 0.8 seconds for that wave to flip you a hundred different ways and almost take your suit off in the meantime. <laughs> and you just have to depend on something holy in that moment in order to make it through. You know, Jesus in, gave us an example of the way we needed to depend wholly on him. And so the thing we will notice today and then through what is known as the upper room discourse, but I'm getting ahead of myself, today we are beginning what is going to be a school year long series likely for us in the upper room. John chapter 13 all the way through all of John chapter 17. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles right now with me to John chapter 13. We're going to be journeying through moment by moment of this time in Jesus' life, these few hours of Jesus' life. And as we get ready to begin this moment, I want to set up how the disciples arrived up in this room together. And to share that, I'm going to read actually from Luke in chapter 22 where it says, There came a day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may have Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So welcome to the upper room. 
It's perhaps the most important room in the Bible. It's in this upper room that Jesus washed his disciples' feet, shared a Passover meal, and turned it into a new covenant, what we celebrate as the Lord's Supper, communion, reminding his disciples of the sacrifice he was about to make. In this room, he identified Judas as his betrayer and called him out, sent him out to begin what God, well, what Satan had put into his heart to do. It's in this room that he caught some of the most poignant truths that we remember Jesus delivering. It's in this room where after singing a song with his disciples, Jesus departed and went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray again. And it was after his crucifixion that his disciples locked themselves into this room. And where Jesus, alive again and unable to be contained by the walls of this upper room, appeared in their presence. Then about 40 days later, during a time of prayer, right here in Luke chapter 1 tells us, in this upper room, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. We know as Pentecost, and the age of the church began in earnest. The upper room. John 13 through 17 is known as the upper room discourse or farewell discourse. And it's in these chapters that we see play by play what that last meal looked like. What a moment. Twelve hours after this moment, in this room, Jesus would be hanging on a cross by nails. To set some context here, I want to help us understand where this passage falls in the book of John, the gospel of John, and maybe even specifically as Opposed to the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You may remember that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew, Mark, and Luke categorized the life of Jesus. And they wrote their stories in ways that are so similar, we ended up calling them synoptic Gospels. We kind of package their stories together and say, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their stories have such overlapping themes. And they use so, so much of the same words and the same phrases. And they follow the same kind of chronological order. So they can be very much, they can feel very much like it's the same book. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are synoptic gospels. You read one of them, you can kind of follow the same story oftentimes in the others. And frankly, that's exactly what we'd expect out of three people who are retelling the life of someone who actually lived and actually did things. You're not surprised that they give Jesus the same words in each of their Gospels as he delivers that same message by that same location because Jesus actually said those words and they're detailing what he said. They're accurate retellings of a historical truth. But the Gospel of John, it's different. Where the synoptics tell the facts, what happened and where and when and in what order, John was more concerned with sharing what it means what it means who Jesus was, what it means that Jesus came and rescued. The synoptics, they kind of felt like a biography. John, the book of John, feels more like a love letter. It doesn't just tell you that. John wanted to set our hearts on fire with the beauty and theological wonder of Jesus. He wanted to cause us to believe. 
He would go on to say at the closing of his book in John chapter 20, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And in the upper room, it's interesting that the synoptic, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they really only shared that it happened and that Jesus instituted the Last Supper, the New Covenant, communion. They leave out everything else. It's just not within the purpose of their moment. But John, who we understand was squished, kind of right next to Jesus around this crowded table, tells us so much more about those twilight hours. He tells us about the conversations, the lessons, the examples, the prayer, the mood in the room, the things they were thinking. John was so impacted by this moment that as the Spirit called his writing along, these two to three hours of Jesus' 30 plus years of life get nearly half of his gospel story. So here we are in the upper room. It's Thursday of Passover week. Jesus has entered Jerusalem to crowds and cheers. The people hoped he was the Messiah. They hoped he was a different kind of Messiah. The leaders just wanted him dead. But it's time for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a holiday that has been celebrated for centuries now in their culture. And families are gathering their kids and close relatives around crowded tables with a meal specially prepared to remind them about that time that God rescued them. About how God said, take a lamb, sacrifice this lamb, spread the blood on your doorpost. We will spare you. I will spare you. And through this, rescue you in an exodus out of Egypt. They're remembering this moment. And this Passover, a grander rescue was about to play out. So in John 13, verse 1, it says this. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world to his father. Here's the moment. You can feel a pivot in John. There's been 12 chapters telling about his life, but this is a defining moment. Jesus says, okay, it's go time. He knew his moment had come to depart out of the world to his father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Here at this moment of Jesus' awareness that it was time to sacrifice his life, he was steadfast in his love. And we're going to notice at least three things about Jesus here this morning. The first is that Jesus was defined by love. That is a reality about God. That is a reality about Jesus. Jesus is defined by love. And I've got to say, after three years with these dudes, crowd around a table with them, he had plenty of reasons to start thinking about himself instead of that. Right? We know of some of the moments, but you know the disciples left out some more of the moments. Jesus had all sorts of reasons to go, forget these guys. I don't want to go through this. But sitting around this room, having loved them faithfully to this point, he loves them till the end. He loves them to his end. To his death. He loves them through his end. His death that was a sacrifice that rescued. He loved them to the end of all ends. Forever. Perfectly. Completely. He loved them to the end. 
John wrote this as a defining feature of how Jesus was about to embark on the next three hours in this upper room, 12 hours till his death, and the remainder of his life as he was raised back to life and ascended into heaven. And John would go on to write in a letter to the churches in 1 John that anyone who does not love evidently doesn't even know God, he says, because God is love. John was consistent in this theme. God is love. He says, in this we love God. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. What's that love made manifest? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John was aware as the Spirit carried him along, reflecting on this upper room at this moment, that the very essence of Jesus was love. His very words, his every act was love. That to know Jesus was to know love. And then to know that love was to be redefined by it and to love in return, to love in response. Jesus was defined by love. What a savior. The passage goes on. Verse 2 says, During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This is an incredible insight to this incredible moment. Man, we see this action. And it's interesting that John didn't choose to just say, so during supper, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking the towel wrapped around his waist, poured water in a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. He didn't stick to the facts of the moment. He starts to, and then he interrupts himself. He says, during supper, oh wait, you have to know the moment. He like invites us in to notice the mood around the table, the, the things that were happening, the thoughts and the psyche of the characters. And he starts with Judas. He says, Judas was about to betray Jesus. The devil had already put it into his heart. To betray Jesus. Before he had come to this room, Judas had gone to the religious leaders and made a deal. Like, I'm going to help you find a time to arrest and then kill Jesus. What do you got for me? And they offered him 30 pieces of silver. It's like, you know, $3,000 equivalent in our time. A quick payout. But at what cost? So we get the psyche of of Judas, and we realize that sitting at this table with the other disciples, Jesus is aware that Judas is about to turn against him. But then we get a glimpse into Jesus' mind and Jesus' thoughts and what's driving his heart. In that moment, Jesus was choosing to live not in reaction to Judas, He was choosing to live, not taking advantage of his position as the son of God here on earth. He instead chose to live out his 
identity, to live out of his identity. Not only was Jesus defined by love, he lived out of his identity. It says that Jesus knew something. He was free to do God's will and God's work. He was free to serve and care for his disciples in physical ways, even the ones who were turning against him, because he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He had, God had given everything to Jesus. That's another way of saying God had given authority to Jesus. Jesus would go on to say that as he leaves. He would make it public. What he knew in his heart in the upper room, he said as a declaration as he ascended into heaven, all authority is given to me. The Father has given everything to my hands. Jesus knew that. That mattered to him. That meant he was in control of all things. And he also knew his identity. It says that Jesus knew that he had come from God. He hadn't forgotten who he was. He hadn't forgotten his identity. He hadn't forgotten that he was the Son of God, an aspect, a part of the divine trinity that had always existed, that always would existed, that always would exist. He knew who he was. Then he knew his destiny. He knew his authority, he knew his identity, and he knew his destiny. He knew that he was going back to God. He had come from God, he was going back to God. He knew how it all ends. He knew his authority, he knew his identity, he knew his destiny. And out of that, he stands up, lays aside his garment, puts on, leaves on his work clothes, picks up a towel and water, and starts to serve the disciples. It's incredible to get a glimpse into what drove Jesus and allowed Jesus to operate by the power of the Spirit in a way that was sinless, in a way that was defined by love. And what I think is impressive to me in this moment is we know facts about those three things as well. Authority and identity and destiny that can drive and assist and motivate us to live, defined by that same love that God has recreated us. If you are in Christ, you can know this. When it comes to authority, Jesus is the authority. Jesus still has the authority. Nothing has changed since that upper room. Jesus is still the King of kings, alive forever, the Lord of lords, and all things are in his control and for his glory. Jesus still has the authority. Means as we walked into church in the rain today, we could rejoice because our hair was frizzy, because Jesus had authority over that moment. And it means as we're uncertain about futures and as we deal with loss, we can know that Jesus is with us and has walked through pain and is still in control. Jesus still has the authority. And when it comes to identity, we can know something too. Jesus knew he had come from God. We know that we were made in his image. And if you're a believer, you know that you've been remade in righteousness. You've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, sealed and adopted his son or his daughter forever. That's your identity. So we know his authority. We know our new identity. And we also know, like Jesus, about destiny. Jesus knew he was going back to God. Believer, you know the same. With the same firm conviction Jesus did, we, in Christ, are going to be with Christ forever. 
We just don't know when that starts. Perhaps you've said goodbye to those who are with him now. Perhaps you're worried about when your time will come. We know our destiny in Christ is to be with the Lord forever. So, if Jesus was able to be loved in the flesh, not derailed by his friend becoming his enemy, released to follow God's plan as he lived out his identity, we can as well. We can know because of his authority that we don't need to be in control. We don't need to be in charge. We don't need to see things go our way. You don't have to have the influence or power over your life that you wish you had. Because you know the one who does. And he is good. And you can trust him. Which is funny because it's more than I can say about myself, even though I keep trying to grasp and have that same authority. We don't need to have the authority because we know and trust the one who does. When it comes to our identity, we can know that our worth and value, they're not determined by how we perform or by who accepts us, about who likes us, about who pursues or is interested in us. Because our identity is wrapped up in something far greater, a God who made me, a God who knows me, a God who has made me new again. That's who I am. So we have a new identity, and we also can live out of our destiny. Our outcome is so sure. The end of our story is the beginning of forever. And that means we don't need, church, you don't need a happy ever after now. Man, I will pray for that for you. I would love us all to know that joy now, but I know a joy set before us all forever in Christ. And so where God sovereignly chooses to not give that experience to us now, we can trust him knowing that we have a destiny that is unshakable and that today is allowed to be shaken. It was that knowledge, that destiny, that identity, and that authority that gave Jesus, operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, the freedom and joy to serve his disciples, to serve the world on a cross. John gives us a perspective into the heart and mind of Jesus as he began his journey to the cross. And that heart and mind was that Jesus is love and Jesus knew his identity. What a room. What a moment. So here's Jesus washing 24 feet of some dudes. There's no other way to say that. It's, it's the way it was. Feet washing was common practice in that day, and for good reason. Today we wear socks and shoes, and we drive everywhere. Our feet don't get nearly as dirty, and our feet are still gross. My wife has a very firm policy in our house about footwear being removed. We wash our kids' feet in the sink all the time, the bathtub all the time. They're always dirty. But in the middle of the first century in the Middle East, everyone wore sandals, and everyone walked everywhere on the same path that everyone else walked, and their animals. Manure was everywhere. You're constantly stepping in it, and it breaks down. So that even when you step around it, you're really stepping in the essence of what was there two weeks ago. 
Foot washing was the common practice. It was a common hospitality in that day. Like a welcome rug at the door. Usually there was a host that would ensure someone was washing the feet. And that someone was always the low man on the totem pole. And it's offensive. But culturally in the day, it was the kids, it was servants, it was the women. Whoever was the lowest in that cultural moment, they were the one who was tasked with the job of doing the dirty work of washing all the guests' feet so that they could be given honor. But Jesus had set this up as a private gathering. And I have questions about why he trusted Peter and John to get this whole thing done. But he did. Maybe this was the miss. They didn't think about somebody to wash other people's feet. There's no host. The disciples arrived and nobody went over to get the foot washing basin and towel and to start washing people's feet. No one took up the initiative to do the work that needed to be done. Kind of like your house when the trash is full. Did you not see? The trash can is full. No one thought to help here, right? I'm telling on myself. We know from the other Gospels perhaps why that was. It was on this walk to this room in Jerusalem that the disciples had started arguing, again, about who was the most important amongst the crew. In fact, two of, their, this, two of the disciples, their mom shows up and tries to ask Jesus to make her sons the most important. Man, stuff went down. You can't pull the mom card. So they're fighting over who's most important. They show up in this room, and they all have dirty feet, and no one's taking the initiative to start the foot washing routine because, well, if they do, that means that, means that they're acknowledging that the others are more important than them and that they're happy to be at their service. And so they all just kind of move over to the tables and lay down, their feet radiating out, still dirty. And I mean laid down. Because the common setup in that day was to be laying down at a low table. I think we have a picture that can showcase that for us. It would be a low table, much like this, and they would be crouching around it, laying down around it with their feet radiating out to the side. They're leaning on their left arm, using their right hand to get the food and to pass the food and to associate together. And they're crowded in closely, so much so that they're almost leaning on each other as they're jockeying for food and supplies. And so in this moment, as the disciples start being eager to begin this Passover meal, Jesus stands up from his position, and he grabs the water and the basin and his towel. And he comes over to the first disciple, puts down the basin, pours out the water, and the disciples are all watching. Jesus picks up a towel, and he puts it on him, ties it around himself, starts to wash their feet, right? So he's right here, he's down low. The only way to do this is to get to the ground. He's kneeling next to his disciples' dirty, smelly feet. And he takes their foot, and he takes and he dips in the water, and they're hearing the water splash. And they're feeling him scrub their feet. And then he's taking a towel right on himself, and he's drying their feet. And they're hearing that sound. And this table is silent, They're not sure what to do. Jesus, their rabbi, is the one who's taking the initiative to wash their feet. So maybe they're feeling like a little bit ashamed because they didn't take the initiative. Maybe they're feeling 
ashamed because they know why they didn't take the initiative. So Jesus is moving disciple by disciple, one at a time. And they're uncomfortable. They don't know what to do with their body. Should they offer their feet? Do they just stay still? Man, if we only had pockets in these tunics, we'd feel better. Right? Like, what am I supposed to do with my hands? The only thing to do is to let Jesus continue. And the towel wrapped around Jesus gets dirtier and dirtier, foot by foot, person by person. Of course, it's Peter that breaks the awkward silence. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him something sensible. I'm just kidding. Peter never says something sensible. Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? It's what everyone was thinking. He's just the one who said it. So I don't want to give Peter too hard of a turn. And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. Jesus is going to go on to explain that one of the reasons he's doing this is to provide an example for them that to be the greatest, you need to embody a servant-hearted attitude. And we'll talk about that next Sunday. But today, we want to get at the first thing he communicates to Peter. Because Peter responds to him. In verse 8, and he says, You shall never wash my feet. You should never. I won't let you do this. And Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter overcorrects. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And he says this, catch this, and you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus is enacting parable at this moment. He's displaying his entire life and ministry and in action. See, at this moment, at this meal, in the upper room, Jesus has laid aside his outer garment. But Jesus had already laid aside his heavenly glory to come down to earth as a man in humility. And Jesus took a basin here in this upper room and water and a towel. Jesus had come to serve us with his entire life and ministry. Jesus put that towel on himself as he cleaned their feet. And Jesus on the cross was going to take their sins, our sins of the world, on himself. Jesus washed their feet in this upper room. He was using that as an example of the fact that he was going to make us holy through his sacrifice. When Jesus was done here, he stood up, we'll read, and he put on his outer garments again, and he laid down to the table with his disciples. And when Jesus had been finished Providing a rescue, he was going to rise again and ascend into glory once more. Foot washing was a picture that Jesus used of the agency of our redemption. The agency of our redemption. It's by Jesus alone. It's by his life and his blood and his cross that we are made clean. Jesus alone can make us clean. That's the point he's making here at first. Jesus alone can make us clean. And Peter didn't get it then. He didn't get it then. 
He was pushing back. He was saying, I don't want you to clean my feet. But he would understand. He would learn. The Spirit would reveal it to him that the cleansing that he needed had to be deeper, a spiritual level, a cleansing he had already professed the key to already, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, so that Jesus could say to you, you already are clean, you already are secure, I'm going to purchase the salvation that you have already started to believe in. In order to share in Jesus with his kingdom, you have to be washed. What Jesus was doing in a humble act of service would clean them physically, but what he was doing the following day on the cross was an ultimate act of service that would clean them spiritually. And he was the agent of that cleaning. You had to trust in Jesus. You had to allow him to rescue you. John was laying there, watching this conversation happen. And he would go on, after he documented the upper room, to write a letter to the churches where he would say in 1 John 1, 7, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Jesus alone can make us clean. That's why if Peter refused to allow Jesus to be the one who washed him, he would be cut off from Jesus. Like Titus would say, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of how we can clean ourselves, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Jesus alone makes us clean. So the question for us today is this. In the upper room, who are we? Who are you? There were 12 guys and Jesus, 13 all together, and all 12 of them had a different view, but perhaps we could look at three to define the common experiences. Perhaps you're like Peter. Peter's pride nearly cost him. And like Peter, many refuse to offer, to Jesus' offer of cleansing. They miss a relationship with him because they believe they can save themselves. That they can wash themselves. That they can fix up their lives and get in order before they come to Jesus repenting of their sin and depending on him alone. And Jesus has a clear answer to Peter. You have no part with me unless you depend on me alone. Jesus offers cleansing salvation to any who would repent of their sins and trust in him. Let's let him be our sufficient savior. Maybe we should ask if we're Judas. And maybe you wouldn't be so bold to say, I'm planning on rebelling against God and actively subverting his mission. But perhaps you're like Judas in that he sat right there at the table. He allowed Jesus to wash his feet. He was a participant in this holy moment, but not on the inside. He showed up and he was there, but he did not believe. It's easy to go to church and participate in Christianity and know many of the right things to say and go through many motions and appear like a disciple. You may look the part because you're here, but deep down, do you know that you belong, that you believe? Has your heart changed? Are you trusting in Jesus alone? 
You can ask him, and he will change it. We need to not play church. We need to embrace Jesus alone as our Savior. Amen. Maybe we should ask, are we John? It's the better of the three options. John doesn't recoil like Peter. In fact, we'll learn later on that John leans in closer to Jesus. He's receiving and believing the work that Jesus is doing. Are we happy to hope in Jesus alone to be our Savior and Redeemer, trusting that he knows how to wash us and he is enough to save us? When that's the way we feel, when that's the thing we know, when that's the thing we've set our heart on, that is salvation. That's believing. And then it doesn't matter. Believing, it doesn't matter if we feel a little dirty, if we seem like there's still parts of our life that aren't whole yet. It doesn't ruin us if we aren't as close to God right now as we feel like we want to be because we can know that those who believe on Jesus alone cannot be lost to him and are cleaned forever. John will go on to urge, remember, that he writes these things, that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by leaving, you will have life in his name. Who are you and I in this story? Church, no matter who we've been, you can be made new in Christ and walk in confident dependence in Jesus by believing that Jesus alone can make you clean. Because he does, Jesus alone gets the glory.